Yes, amen. I want to say a big thank you to about 50 of you guys who showed up yesterday. We got a lot of work done here at the church. And I was just uh, talking with Mike Everett, who organized all of that, and we were both commenting just on how encouraging it is um, to, to see people serving and to feel that fellowship together. Um, the yard looks really nice out there, by the way. Um, the yard here looks way nicer, in fact, than the yard at my house. <laughs> if you would have come over to my house a couple years ago, my yard actually, my yard actually looked pretty decent. Um, the, the grass was green, it was thick, there was no weeds. We had done a lot of work on it when we first moved into the house. If you came over to my house now, you would see some erosion, you would see uh, some patchy bare spots, you would see a lot of weeds. Uh, we have a lot of shade from two big trees. Um, I haven't really been taking care of the yard the last two years for a couple reasons. And we have tons of squirrels who dig in it on a daily basis. So if you looked at it today, you would never know that at one point it had actually been a beautiful lawn. Churches can actually be a lot like lawns. They can start off healthy, start off strong, but over time they can change. If there's a neglect of the truth, if there is a failure to, to cultivate love for Christ, if there's a tolerance of false teaching or a tolerance of sin, that leads to compromise in the church. And it leads to corruption in the church. In the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, we find seven letters to seven churches. And the, the middle three of these churches, they actually show us sort of a downward progression. The church at Pergamum, which we'll look at today in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2, we find there's a church that has been faithful in the face of persecution, but they tolerate false teachers. They tolerate false teaching. The next church, Thyatira, we find that they are busy for Christ. They're doing a lot of things, but they are actually tolerating and participating in immorality. Sardis, in the opening verses of chapter 3, has a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says they're actually dead. There's only a few that remain at that church that have not soiled their garments. That's the progression. There's a downward progression of neglect and error that leads to corruption, immorality, and eventually a dead church. Listen, Jesus wants a pure church. Jesus wants a church that is pure in its doctrine, a church that is pure in its practice. Jesus wants a church that is sold out to the truth and a church that is separate and distinct from the world. And that's why Jesus offers, or issues rather, stern warnings, and he calls for nothing short of repentance to churches that have started to allow those kinds of things to take root in their midst. But Jesus also offers, time and time again, a promise of reward, a promise of blessing to those who persevere in the faith. He reminds us in all of these letters who he is, and he reminds us what he offers to those who trust him and obey him. Our text this morning is Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Please follow along as I read. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, 
who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Father, your word comes to us with truth, with power, and authority. Lord, give us receptive hearts this morning. I pray that we would understand what this text means and also specifically how it is so necessary for our church today in 2022 in Lawrence, Kansas. I pray that we would heed these words, that we would hear them and obey them, that we would see the warnings and also embrace the promises. Lord, strengthen our faith, and I pray that you would strengthen this church, that we might honor you, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. In each one of these letters, as we've been seeing, Jesus always starts off his sort of introduction with a description of himself. And it's always a description of himself that calls us back to that vision that the Apostle John saw, the vision recorded in chapter 1. We won't read the whole vision, but you can see the little callback here in verse 12. To the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's a reference to chapter 1, verse 16, and we say, okay, so why the image of a sword? What does that mean? Well, the sword was a symbol of both judgment and authority. Rome carried the sword. The, the peace that existed in the empire was won and was preserved by the sword. Those who rebelled against Roman authority, those who tried to cast off Roman rule, those who broke Roman law had to face the Roman sword. Rome had the power to both establish and enforce their wishes. And so the sword was a symbol of that power and that authority and even a symbol of judgment. So the image here of a sword, if we look back in chapter 1, verse 16, a sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus, this is a powerful symbol that describes for us the word of Jesus Christ, that he speaks with power, that he speaks with authority, and that he speaks as the highest and as the ultimate judge. Back in John's gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What Jesus says is what matters. Hebrews 4, 12 tells us the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So rather than imagine a literal sword coming from the mouth of Jesus, maybe some of you kids are thinking about, okay, how could Jesus have a sword coming out of his mouth? I don't think that's what we're supposed to understand here. Rather, this, this picture of a sword proceeding from the mouth of Christ is to make us realize the decisive power of Jesus' words of judgment, that his words cut, that his words pierce, that his words even carry out and accomplish God's justice. 
his punishment on the wicked. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, it speaks of the Messiah. It says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The word of Christ actually has more power than any Roman sword. In Revelation chapter 19, when John describes this glorious vision of the returning Christ as he comes again to earth, he writes in chapter 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So the one who speaks to the church is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword preceding from his mouth. And so for a people who are facing the threat on a daily basis of a Roman sword, this introduction reminds them which sword they should really fear. Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the final judge. He's the one to whom all the world will answer. And as the head of the church, they better listen to what he has to say. So what does Jesus have to say? Well, three truths I want to pull out this morning from this letter. Three truths that the church of Jesus Christ, both in John's day and in ours, that the church needs to know. Here's the first truth. Number one, Jesus delights in uncompromising loyalty. He delights in uncompromising loyalty. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus commends this church. They're doing a few things right. He says, number one, I, I know your dwelling place. And that's significant because the place where they dwelled was a place of great spiritual hostility. The church at Pergamum had not always been there. It was a church plant at some point. The gospel had taken root. It was probably a result of Paul's efforts while at Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 tells us that he continued there at Ephesus for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Well, that would include Pergamum. The city Pergamum was famous for its beauty and its wealth. It was full of temples, full of palaces. They had a massive library there that boasted 200,000 volumes. That was a big deal in that day. The only library that rivaled this one, that was greater than this one, would have been the world-famous library in Alexandria. So it was a, a center for education and intellectualism, and, and it cost a lot of money to have a library like that. It was pretty big, um, um, something you would boast about. You know, you drive through some of these small towns in Kansas You'll see a highway sign. It says home of the you know, world's largest prairie dog or something like that, you know, that they're famous for. Well, they would have been famous for this library. That was one of their calls or their claims to fame. But it wasn't their only claim to fame. It was also the capital city of the entire province. If you think about a Roman province, this would have been the headquarters for the political power in the region. It was the capital city. And they were actually the first ones, the first kids on the block, to have a temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperor. We've talked already the last few weeks about uh, this imperial cult, this worship of the Caesar, the Roman emperor. Well, they were the first ones to have a temple to the emperor. And they eventually built two more. So there was three temples to the Roman emperor in Pergamum. 
So while all the cities that John is writing to here were under Roman rule, and Christians all across the empire would have faced um, um, opposition and pressure due to emperor worship, it was especially intense here at Pergamum, perhaps the most intense. Emperor worship in Pergamum wasn't just a once-a-year ritual that all the Roman citizens had to do, you know, where they would offer the pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, and declare that Caesar is Lord. That was something all Christians in that day had to face, but emperor worship in Pergamum was woven into the fabric of daily life. It was part of their culture, part of their, the, part of their community. It was far more than a once-a-year event. On top of these three temples to the emperor, they had temples to four key Roman deities. They had a temple to Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom and warfare. They had a temple to Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. Maybe some of you have seen you know, um, on, on hospital logos or something like that, that, that symbol of a staff that has a serpent curled around it. Maybe that rings a bell. That's the staff of Asclepius. He was the god of medicine. So Pergamum was a center for medicine, a center for healing, and they worshiped this god who had the sign of the serpent as one of his key symbols. During the reign of Diocletian, Christian stonecutters in Pergamum were put to death because they refused to carve the image of the serpent. There's a lot of hostility there. They also worshiped the god Dionysus. They had a temple to him, and he was the god of the harvest, the god of fertility. So you can imagine all the sorts of paganism connected with that kind of worship, the fertility god. And they worshiped the god Zeus. They had a temple to Zeus, who was the so-called king of the gods. And in the center of the city, they had a massive altar to Zeus. This altar was 120 feet by 112 feet, as far as the footprint. And the podium itself was about 18 feet high. So don't think of a little six-by-six altar. This was a massive landmark in the city. There was a 446-foot frieze, this this carved surface that went across the front of this altar that displayed a scene of battle between giants and the gods. So it was a magnificent work of art, a cultural icon, and a center for the worship of Zeus. This is where these people lived. So it's not hard to see why Jesus might call Pergamum the place where Satan's throne is, the place where Satan dwells, verse 13. We know that Satan is a liar. We know that Satan is a deceiver and that all idolatry traces its roots back to him. Satan is the god of this world. It was Satan who was underneath and behind the scenes. He's the one who's actually wielding Roman power and pagan spirituality for his own ends. This high concentration of emperor worship, Roman power, and paganism meant that this was the place, among all the places in the empire, that Satan was the busiest. The place where Satan was most at home. The place where he dwelled, Jesus could say where he was enthroned, not in the sense that geographically that was his headquarters, but it's the place where his power was on display the most. And that's where these believers lived, right in the middle of all of this, with the symbolism of the serpent, with people declaring that Caesar is Lord, with this massive altar depicting the spiritual warfare that was going on. It's the place where Satan dwelled. And in the middle of all of that, Jesus commends these people because they were faithful. Look what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my 
name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. When these believers were baptized, they had taken upon themselves the name of Christ. They had identified with Jesus. And they had declared publicly their faith in him. And they weren't about to give that up. Jesus commends them for that. They didn't deny their faith. He mentions they did this even in the days of Antipas. It's interesting, in Greek, the the name Antipas means against all. Think about that. It's him against the world. That's certainly how it would have felt to be a Christian um, in the city of Pergamum. All we know about Antipas is what we read here, that he was killed for his faith. Uh, Tradition holds that he was burned to death inside a brazen bull for opposing uh, idolatry, pagan worship. And Jesus calls him Antipas, this man who set himself against the world, against the worship of Zeus and Dionysus and Asclepius and Athena and the emperor himself. He calls him my faithful witness. And this is really a remarkable title because this title is actually used to describe Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. If you flip the page over, chapter 1, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who is perfectly faithful, who testifies to the truth, who reveals the truth of God. He is rightly called the faithful witness. And Antipas is given this great commendation where Jesus calls him my faithful witness. And he was killed. But despite that opposition, despite persecution, despite the spiritual hostility that they faced in the city, they had not denied the name of Jesus Christ. So this church has much that they are to be commended for. They had faithfully resisted external threats, the the threat of opposition and persecution, and they've been loyal to Christ, and this pleases the Lord. They are living out and exemplifying what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't it amazing that there's a faithful church right in the middle of Pergamum of all places, the place where Satan's throne was, the place where Satan could be said to dwell? So Jesus delights in their uncompromising loyalty. But number two, a second truth we need to know is that Jesus also demands uncompromising purity. Jesus demands uncompromising purity. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Here's the criticism Jesus has. I have a few things against you, he says, and we can boil it down to this. Number one, there were some among them who were doctrinally compromised. They held to certain teaching. So there's a problem here with their doctrine, with their teaching. And so that's problem number one, that there were some who had latched onto this teaching. Problem number two is that it appears the rest of the church, even if they didn't personally latch onto that teaching, they were tolerating it. They were tolerating the presence of that false teaching in their midst. To understand this criticism, we have to have an understanding of the Old Testament story that is referenced here. We see two names, Balaam and Balak. 
And Jesus is using this historical story from the Old Testament to illustrate sort of the nature of the error that they were embracing, the problem with the Nicolaitans. It's like, hey, what happened back then with Balaam is just like what you guys are doing now with the Nicolaitans. The story of Balaam and Balak is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 24 and into 25. You can go read that. Balak was the king of Moab, the king of the Moabites. And he saw the children of Israel as they were approaching uh, through the wilderness. They had left Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land. And Balak is nervous, and rightly so. He's heard about these people. He knows what God, their God, did to Pharaoh. And if Pharaoh and his army couldn't stand up to these people, then the Moabites were in trouble. He knew that. So he tries to hire a prophet named Balaam. Um, to curse the people of God. He, he tries to offer money three different times. Uh, Balaam makes these sacrifices, but God tells him, do not curse these people. And instead, he ends up blessing them. So Balaam wasn't able to curse them. He wasn't able to get that paycheck from Balak, but he did offer some advice to Balak, and we could sum up his advice this way. Balaam basically told this pagan king, he says, listen, if you can get the Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men so that they join in marriage, if they will then join in your worship of idols, then you won't have to fight these people. Their own God will judge them. And if you really want to trip these people up, that's what you need to do. And that's exactly what happened. Numbers chapter 25 verse 1 says that while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, this false god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is one of the critical failures in the history of Israel. That they joined in the pagan worship and the immorality of the Moabites. And God judged them for it. In fact, 24,000 people ended up dying from a plague because of this crucial error. Numbers 31, 16 says, behold, these, speaking of the Moabites, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. And you might ask the question, why would Balaam do that? Why would he give that sort of advice and that counsel? Why would he want to see the Israelites tripped up and judged by God? He wanted the money. It was for the sake of, of gain. You might say, okay, so here's this Old Testament story, but that's a long time ago. That's centuries and centuries and centuries prior to what's going on in Pergamum. It's in a different place. It's a different group of people altogether. There are no Moabites anymore. They're not worshiping Baal. Balaam and Balak aren't still alive. So why is this story getting brought up? And why does Jesus say that you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam? Well, it's because Satan is running the same deception in Pergamum. It's the same kind of error. False teachers, like Balaam, were looking for selfish gain, so they were spreading a lie, spreading deception that would lead the church eventually into immorality. In Peter's day, he wrote this about false teachers, 2 Peter 2.15, that forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. 
So the Old Testament language, the Old Testament story of Balaam is used here to shine light on the true nature of the problem at Pergamum. Just like the ancient Israelites had been tempted and deceived into participating in worshiping idols with the women of Moab. So also in this day, the Nicolaitans were telling the Christians at Pergamum that you know what, it's really okay for you guys to participate in the pagan worship of Zeus or Athena or Dionysius or Asclepius or the emperor more than likely. That it's okay for syncretism to happen, to sort of mix together. You can keep worshiping Jesus. Yeah, don't deny Jesus. Don't deny your faith in him. Just add in some of these other things. And so the Christians at Pergamum were being invited to the ritual worship in the pagan temples, which included eating food sacrificed to idols and included immorality. Now the Jerusalem council years earlier had already settled this issue. This kind of syncretism, this sort of participation in pagan practices was not permitted for followers of Christ. Acts chapter 15, 28 says, this is the apostles concluding, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So the apostles had already given a ruling on this issue. We don't want Christians to be participating in these pagan practices. It's as simple as that. But the Nicolaitans, this, this false group, was claiming otherwise. Like Balaam, they were driven by greed. Like Balaam, they were promoting syncretism, the mixing together of worshiping Jesus and worshiping false gods. And like Balaam, their counsel, their teaching, was going to lead to immorality. So they're arguing for a libertarian approach. They're abusing grace. They are minimizing God's desire that the church would be separate and distinct from the world and its practices. Now, the whole church was not sucked into this. Notice in verse 14, he says that you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But that actually leads us to the second problem, doesn't it? While some in the church had embraced this belief and some in the church were starting to get sucked into these practices, the rest of the church was tolerating it. Nobody was standing up and saying, that's wrong. Nobody was challenging and confronting sin and saying, this dishonors Christ. Nobody in the church was bringing scripture to bear and calling sinners to repent. Nobody was standing up in the church and refuting the false teachers and saying that what the Nicolaitans are claiming is absolutely untrue and dangerous. No, instead, they were tolerating this teaching in their midst. You see, they had resisted the external threat. The external threat is persecution, opposition, even being put to death for the name of Christ. They resisted that external threat, but they had succumbed to a different threat, an internal threat of spiritual corruption because they tolerated compromise. They tolerated compromise. They did not practice the discipline that Jesus commands for the church. 
And they're not the only church to make this mistake. The church at Corinth had the same problem. Listen to what Paul says to them. They were tolerating immorality in their midst. And they even were boasting about it. They were bragging about how inclusive they were. They were bragging about how loving and gracious they were. They were bragging about their freedom because it doesn't matter what we do. God will forgive us and his grace is bigger than our sin. And they were celebrating that. But Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, a little bit of yeast, leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. The Apostle Paul tells that church that they're not supposed to go around judging people in the world. God will judge them. That's not our responsibility to hold the world accountable. But it is our responsibility to hold each other accountable. It is our responsibility to judge within the church. And if there is ongoing, unrepentant sin of immorality, that is to be cleansed and removed from the church. So what's the solution for the people at Pergamum? What does Christ call them and command them to do? Verse 16, therefore, repent, repent. They are to turn from the false teaching of the Nicolaitans and utterly reject it. It should have no place in their hearts or in their minds. And they are to renounce their failure to deal with error. They are to repent of their wrongful tolerance. And instead, they are to deal with it and cleanse it from their midst. Tolerance would have been celebrated in their city, much like it is celebrated in our culture today. Think about all the different temples that were there. I don't think anybody cared if they worshipped Jesus. They just were upset that they only would worship Jesus. So polytheism would have been part of the water that they drank there in Pergamum. So tolerance would have been celebrated in their city, and it would have been even in an immediate sense, appealing to them because it would have meant avoiding hardship. Um, It would have won you friends to go network and mingle and share those experiences with everyone else. But that sort of false teaching is wrong and dangerous to the church and displeasing to the Lord. So they're called to repent. And what happens if they don't? Look at the warning. Therefore, verse 16, repent if not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, they may tolerate compromise. They may tolerate false teaching. They may tolerate the immorality that comes with it. But Jesus won't. He says, I will come to you, speaking to the whole church. Even though not all in the church had embraced this teaching or participated in these practices, Jesus says, I will come to you as a whole, to the whole church, because of their willingness to tolerate it. There's a word of discipline there. There's discipline for the entire church. 
But then he says, I will come to you as a whole, and I will wage war against them. Those false teachers and those that were participating in immorality, Jesus says, I will come in judgment for them. He says, listen, church, if you won't deal with them, I will. I will. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's what the church needs to be reminded of. That Jesus desires a pure church that is pure in its doctrine and pure in its practice. And if we tolerate impurity, if we tolerate false teaching, if we tolerate corrupt lifestyles that perpetuate sin and bad fruit, Jesus says he will come and deal with it. Too often churches, when they consider problems in the church, when they consider um, aberrant doctrine or they consider the presence of ongoing sin in their midst, churches typically just think about damage control. How can we deal with this without, and cause the least amount of disruption? Too often churches are concerned about PR. How will this make us look? In our community, how will the people in the church, what will they think about our leaders if we handle this directly? Too often, church leadership thinks about whether or not people will leave. If we call out this false teaching, there's some people in the church that may get upset and leave, and then maybe they won't be there on Sunday. Maybe they won't give money to the church. Churches don't spend enough time thinking about what does Jesus want? And allowing our proper fear of him, our reverence for him, his authority to dictate how we deal with errors, with sin in the church. Jesus delights in uncompromising loyalty, yes, but he also demands uncompromising purity. There's a third truth I want to show you this morning. Number three, Jesus delivers incomparable joy in eternity. Jesus delivers incomparable joy in eternity. Jesus not only commends them, he not only gives this, this correction, this criticism, but he also gives them a promise following the pattern of all of these letters. Look in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Following Jesus faithfully has a great cost. In fact, even in this text, we see that it cost Antipas his life. For these people to receive the word of Christ and repent and obey, it was going to require some necessary conflict in their church. Raise your hand if you enjoy conflict. You're a weirdo if you do. I don't think any of us enjoys conflict. We don't enjoy confrontation. I don't want to get sideways with any of you. But to deal with sin requires some necessary conflict. It's hard to do church discipline. And following Jesus for them would mean there's a social cost. It would mean that they would be outcasts in their city. That they would be perceived as threats to society. Because they were unpatriotic. They didn't acknowledge Caesar. They were swimming the wrong direction. But Jesus tells these people, despite the personal cost to your life, despite the, the social cost within your church, the relational cost, despite the cost in your culture of what it will mean for you to be outcasts, 
it's worth it. In the first two letters, Jesus offers a promise to overcomers. And here, again, he uses that same language, to him who overcomes, to him who perseveres in his faith, to him who keeps believing the truth and keeps holding fast, to the ones who keep holding fast to my name, the ones who are willing to deal with false teaching, the ones who are willing to deal with idolatry and correct the immorality in their midst. He says, to those who overcome, he promises two gifts. The first is this. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Both of these gifts are a little bit tricky for us to interpret, but I think we can make some sense of this. Just like the mention of Balaam uh, earlier in this text takes us back to this season in Israel's history where they were wandering through the wilderness, this mention of manna sort of takes us back to that same point in time. If you remember, each day, well, rather six out of seven days, God would provide literally bread from heaven. He fed his people in the wilderness. And on the sixth day, he would send a double portion. They would gather twice as much, and they wouldn't have to gather any on the Sabbath. And that's how he sustained their life. That's how he kept them alive for those 40 years. Now, some of this manna we find in the the law of Moses was to be put into a pot, and this little pot was placed somewhere very significant. It was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, this special piece of furniture that symbolized uh, the place where God's glory dwelled, the place where he would manifest his presence in, in, the, in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, in the most holy place. Later on, the, the tabernacle was sort of upgraded, and Solomon built a beautiful temple for the Lord. And all that furniture was moved into its new home in the temple, and the ark was placed in the most holy place in the temple but Solomon's temple would one day be destroyed. And Jewish tradition has it that, um, that the priests, the Levites, they saw the armies coming into Jerusalem, that they took the ark and some of the other furniture and they hid it somewhere beneath Mount Sinai. And there's a tradition in, in Jewish lore that during the Messianic kingdom, when the Messiah comes back and establishes his reign, that that furniture would be brought out and that the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant this supernatural food that had lasted and been preserved throughout the centuries, that it would be shared with God's faithful people in the Messianic kingdom. I think that this statement about giving some of the hidden manna may be drawing on some of those themes, drawing on some of that imagery. In addition, as Christians, we know that in John chapter 6, Jesus teaches us something about bread, doesn't he? He says that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, will never thirst. For believers, every time we share in the Lord's Supper, we remember that our life, our eternal life, our spiritual life is found in Christ. So as we sort of take all those different sort of themes as backdrop to the statement that to him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I think what Jesus is telling them is this. He's saying, listen, you may miss out on the feast at some of the local temples. You may not be able to share in those meals. But there is a far better feast that I am providing for you. There's a far better feast coming in my future kingdom, and it far outshines any of these massive festivals that are going on in Pergamum. It is way better than whatever is going on in the worship of Dionysus or Zeus or Athena. Trust me, you want to be at that meal. 
You want to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You want to behold Christ and have life in Him. That manna, that bread is better than anything else that you're saying no to in this life. A second gift, not only will I give him some of the hidden manna, secondly, Jesus says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In ancient times, the the victors of their games, whether it's the Isthmian games or the Olympic games, they were often awarded a white stone as sort of a a trophy or certificate that was used as sort of their, their entrance into the reward ceremony. Someone showed up and said, well, I won the 40-yard dash, and here's my ticket. And that was their entrance into the award ceremony where they would be honored, where they would participate in all the festivities and the feasts and the rewards, where they would be given their crown. So Jesus says that for those who overcome, for those of you who keep holding fast to my name, those of you who are faithful to repent and to deal with what's going on in your church, tells them, listen, you may not be admitted to the inner circles of society in Pergamum. You may not be honored here. You may be an outsider or an outcast here, but Jesus promises to welcome them into his kingdom, and Jesus promises to give them a name. They will be somebodies, not nobodies, in his kingdom because their identity is rooted in their relationship with Christ. Again, the symbolism of a name and a name given from God shows high honor and a new identity. In fact, in in Revelation chapter 19, again, that vision of Christ coming in glory seated on the white horse with the eyes of flaming fire, the sword coming out of his mouth, it says there's a name written on his thigh. Jesus has a name, a holy name. The name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jesus has that high and lifted up name, and he promises to give a new name, an honored name, a name that links our identity with his to everyone who overcomes. Jesus says, I will give you of the hidden manna, and I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it. This actually echoes a promise found Again, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 62, in verse 2, as God speaks this promise of restoration to his people, he says, The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. It's a new name. It gives honor. There's glory in it. Yes, the glory is ultimately for Christ. The reward is ultimately for Christ. He is the one who is high and lifted up. But as we believe in him, as we are lowered in humility and suffering and even death in this life, Jesus raises raises us up onto the victor's platform with him. It's an amazing promise that we belong to his kingdom, that we would have access into his presence, that we have identity in Christ, a new name. And that is worth being an outcast, being a nobody in this world. These promises of of the hidden manna and the white stone with the new name, these promises are meant to encourage and incentivize our perseverance. Yes, there's a cost. Yes, it's hard. But this is what Jesus offers to those who overcome. So these people faced the threat of the sword from Rome. They faced great pressure from paganism. But Jesus has the final say. 
And he says that loyalty and that purity and that perseverance in the faith will be rewarded. Perhaps there's some of you here today, you're listening to me talk, maybe you've listened to other sermons, maybe you've been reading your Bible, you've been talking with a friend, maybe you're a kid who's heard your parents talk about Jesus so many times you can't count. But maybe you're not really sure if this whole following Jesus thing is really for you. Maybe you're not convinced that it's that big a deal. Or maybe you're not convinced that, that it's really worth it. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, the warning here of judgment, that Jesus will come and make war against those who are not submitted to him, and also the promise of reward, of eternal life, and being granted access into the kingdom of Jesus, that's for us. It's not just for Pergamum. Whoever is hearing my voice this morning, whoever is hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying through this text, I hope you're listening. I hope you can hear. If you are able to hear this morning, I want you to understand that life with Christ, life in Christ, is an eternity of joy. It's an eternity of joy, and it's offered to you. If you will commit to follow Jesus, if you will repent of your sin and your unbelief and bow your knee to Christ, you will have to give some things up, yes. If you're going to be all in and surrender to Jesus Christ, you have to give up your personal autonomy. You don't get to be your own boss anymore. Yes, you may have to leave some things in the world behind you to hold your career, your finances, your time, your reputation with an open hand. But Jesus promises there is an eternity of joy on the other side, that there is a deeper satisfaction in Him, the living bread of life. There's a deeper satisfaction in Him than anything else the world can offer you. There is a more meaningful identity in Christ than anything you can create and craft for yourself here in this world. Psalm 144 verse 4 says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Life is very, very short. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you have an ear to hear this morning, I'm asking you a question. Which will it be? Will it be Christ or the world? It's one or the other. There is no riding the fence. You either say yes to everything that Jesus calls you to or you in essence reject him in favor of holding on to something in this world. The old African-American spiritual captures the cry of the faithful believer, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. I hope that's what you will say today that you will choose Christ over the world, that you will believe that loyalty to him and the purity of faith in Christ and following Christ is worth an eternity of joy. Church, before I let us go this morning, there's two simple points of application that I want us to glean from this text. 
Number one, and these are very simple, the church must be aware and beware of syncretism. We have to be very, very careful as a church about what ideas and ideologies and beliefs and doctrines we allow to creep into the church. We must not think that we can bring in different ideas, different truth claims or teachings from the world and somehow mix that together with the truth of Christ. It's been a challenge for God's people all throughout the ages. We saw how, how it was a challenge for Israel. They mixed in the worship of Baal with the worship of Yahweh. It was a problem for the Galatians. Paul writes to the Galatians and says, you can't mix in Jewish legalism with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sort of syncretism doesn't work. It was a challenge for the Colossians. Paul told those believers, you can't take in this Gnosticism and mix it in with the truth of faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. It doesn't work. And it's a challenge for the believers at Pergamum. You can't take the worship of the emperor participation in these other feasts and mix it with the worship of Christ and it's a problem for the church today we mix in secular psychology with the truth of God's word and we think it's going to work we mix in postmodernism, relativism and allow it to seep into the doctrine of the church the church today is sadly open to many new age practices and this sort of spiritualism, this mysticism, and we try to bring that in and, and syncretize it with the truth of the gospel. Different social theories and ideologies. We could keep going on and on and on down the list. Church, we have to be very, very on guard against the temptation and the danger of syncretism. We can't mix anything with the truth of Christ. There's reasons why churches give in to syncretism. I think one is a failure to uphold the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We think that this isn't enough and that we need something else. We need some experience. We need some outside expert. We need some sort of cultural power or popularity. And that's a lie. Scripture is enough. It's true. It's authoritative. I think for many churches, it's simply a lack of biblical discernment. People are blind. They don't see the dangers that are creeping into the church. The wolves usually wear sheep's clothing because they don't want to be detected. So we have to pay attention. False teaching rarely walks in the front door of the church and announces itself and says, hey everyone, I'm a false teacher and I'm here to mislead you away from Christ. Who would like to come to lunch? That's not how it works. It's subtle. We need to be biblically discerning. Colossians chapter 2 tells us Take care to be on guard lest we are taken captive by worldly philosophies that are not according to Christ. We have to be on guard. And sadly, too many churches simply desire to be accepted by the world. And that's why it happens. That's why the church loses its distinction. That's why the church makes, makes choices to compromise. Because we have this desire to be accepted by the world, to be like the world. We don't want to be outcasts. We don't want to be scorned. We don't like being hated. But James 4.4 4 tells us, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church, we have to be willing to be distinct. We must beware the dangers of syncretism, mixing truths in with biblical Christianity that have their source in Satan's deception, the world's foolishness, fleshly desires. 
Second thing we need to be on guard against, we have to deal with impurity in the church. We have to be willing to deal with problems when they arise in the church. While tolerance and acceptance is the assumed rule of the day, we must not tolerate the things that Jesus doesn't tolerate. Remember the Nicolaitans here that these people were tolerating? The letter to Ephesus, Paul or Jesus rather, commends the Ephesians because they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, Jesus says, which I also hate. We're not supposed to tolerate the things that Jesus doesn't tolerate. We must not accept the things that Jesus Christ condemns. We must not permit the things that Jesus Christ forbids. Some people will accuse us of being narrow, unloving, judgmental, legalistic, the big, bad, scary word, fundamentalist. Some people will accuse us of those things. So be it. Despite what people may say, this is actually the biblical definition of love, that we love Jesus enough to obey him. God forbid that we would not love Jesus enough to obey him and do the things he calls us to do as a church. It means we love the church enough to preserve its purity, that when there is a cancerous teaching in the church, we're willing to cut it out. And it shows that we actually love each other enough to warn one another of destructive beliefs and destructive behaviors. It is absolutely unloving for us to watch someone walk down the path of destruction and do nothing to try to rescue them from their error. So church, we need to be willing to deal with impurity in the church. False teaching, unrepentant sin. Yes, we speak the truth and we do it with love and we have to be willing to follow through. So church, will we hear what Jesus says to the churches? I pray we will and that these words will direct us into a healthy and faithful future. I hope our church doesn't look like my lawn after a couple years. And the good news is that when weeds come up, when there's a few bare patches here and there, lawns don't have to stay that way. They can be changed. Repentance can happen. There can be restoration and growth. Jesus gives this warning to the church at Pergamum because it's not too late for them. They're simply being called to respond. May we be willing to hear the voice of Jesus and respond as well. Lord, your word comes to us with power, with authority. It's like a two-edged sword that cuts right through our desires to be accepted by the world, our desires for pleasure, our fear of opposition, our unwillingness to speak the truth in love to one another. Lord, I pray that your word would lay open any hidden fears or misplaced priorities. I pray that your word would pierce all the way to the depths of our heart this morning, that we would recognize our responsibility as a church to not only be faithful to resist external opposition, but also that we would be faithful to deal with any internal corruption that may arise. I thank you, Lord, for how this church historically has demonstrated a willingness to, deal, to, to do that and to deal with problems. There's been good fruit from that. Lord, we know that we cannot rest on our laurels and say, yeah, one time we did that and obeyed Jesus. We know that that has to be an ongoing commitment of obedience. Lord, give us theological discernment. Help us to beware of false teaching that could creep in and corrupt the church. 
pray that we would be able to discern um, how to distinguish between false teaching and heresy that is destructive and maybe just things that people may interpret differently. We know that there's certain things that are less clear in Scripture. We need to show charity. We need to be patient with each other. There's things we can work through. There's things we can agree to disagree on, but God, we need discernment. We need wisdom to identify things that are actually dangerous, things that cannot be tolerated. So Lord, give us a hunger to keep reading your word, to keep studying it so that we know the authentic truth and are able to distinguish the counterfeit. And Father, if there's some in here today who are not yet convinced that the temporary sacrifice of following Jesus is worth it, pray that you would open their ears, that they would hear the word of warning, the word of judgment, that Jesus comes with a sword. And I pray that they would also hear the word of promise, this word of encouragement, that for those who trust in Christ, for those who are submitted to, surrendered to him, there is an eternity of joy awaiting. So Lord, increase our faith and strengthen us to live in light of these truths. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.